Welcome to the Being Better Together podcast from Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. This podcast is a series of conversations with people who inspire us about making healthcare a better place to work. We cover a wealth of topics from workplace cultures through inspiration, laughter and joy to appreciative inquiry and how to do work safely. I'm Emma from Learning from Excellence. This week's episode is a conversation recorded live at our Learning from Excellence community event in October 2021 between Adrian, Chris and Don Berwick, paediatrician, president emeritus and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Don speaks about his career, his reflections on his paper about the three areas of healthcare and what he thinks we can do to make healthcare better before answering some questions posed by the audience. The session was a highlight of the conference for many, and I'm sure you will enjoy it too. We're delighted to be joined by Don Berwick. Um, so welcome, Don. We really appreciate you joining us today. Hi, Don. Delighted, Adrian. Thank you for having me. I'll just briefly mention um, for the listeners who are not aware of this, that um, I, I met you a couple of years ago. You came to do a visit to... Uh, Birmingham Children's Hospital and our chief executive asked me if I'd be uh, interested in meeting you and I said yeah and uh, and um, she said we'd like you to uh, tell them about your work with learning from excellence and um, so I told you in, on the intensive care unit briefly explained that this is an idea that we want to learn from what's working it's allied with safety too but it's also around appreciation and um, you seem to you seem to get it, and, and you talked about it. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you talked about it at a King's Fund um, webinar, and you mentioned you referred to me as a young intensivist. I was very pleased about that. So thank you for that. But uh, we want to talk to you about all sorts of things, particularly around the Era Three paper that you wrote back in 2016. So I'll come on to that in a second. But I'll hand over to Chris just to um, say hello. So hi, Doc. Uh, it's absolutely lovely to meet you. I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about your career, but from your perspective, um, you have one of the most distinguished careers of any doctor on the planet. And I know that's something that'll make you feel a bit uncomfortable, but, <laughs> but it's true. Hey? Now, it's easy to go and read about you. But what I'd like to know is what's, what are you most proud of? And what would you say are the, the major points in your career that got you to know? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer without accepting your initial premise. But uh, well, I'll tell you what I've passed my most proud of my children and my grandchildren. Uh, for me, family has been mainstay for my whole uh, career. Uh, I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and a great marriage and um, learning from my children and watching them grow up and seeing them mature into the adults they are has been the best experience of my life. Um, all four of my kids um, and all four of their significant others are in service um, roles now. They've found their way eventually to doing something like my youngest daughter who's a teacher. Her husband is in public housing, um, the public housing field in Boston. My oldest son works on uh preserving democracy and so each of them has matured into a person who's really contributing so that's been so mainstay in my life it's what immediately comes to mind Chris I think that personally um, I think the turning points for me have been uh, friendships Uh, my my journey into trying to help healthcare get better is not even close to alone Um, the uh, the Good fortune, oh, now almost 40 years ago, of meeting a group of um, people who became close friends who are all concerned about the same problem. And and I try to say, never worry alone. And I think that kind of realizing I was part of uh, that point, small, but uh, uh, intense community of common interest to try to change things was, uh, I guess that I'd have to mark that as as a turning point for me. Uh, the other was personal experiences with illness in my own family and beginning to see um, how far we are from what we need to be as a, as, a, as a place. So kind of relating the personal side of my experience to my professional goals. That's some of it. Uh, there are more technical things. Meeting W. Edwards Deming, 
who most of you listening to me never had the opportunity to do. Deming was a irascible, difficult man in some ways, but absolutely fearless and challenging, deeply held conventional wisdoms, things that people took as absolutely certain and obvious that I now know to be absolutely wrong. And he had the courage to, um, as a scientist, to speak the truth. And that was uh, that was really important to me, uh, as were many other teachers that I encountered as I got into this technical side of improvement. Is that responsive, Chris? I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Oh, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the Edwards Deming thing just made me instantly think of the, the red bean experiment and watching watching videos of that from many years ago. And that's something people might want to look up on the on the internet. But also your, your point you made about finding finding a group of people who are interested in the same thing. I think today what we've got is people who are finding their tribe on in this conference people who, who value a set of behaviours within healthcare, which uh, perhaps haven't been valued previously or maybe we've grown away yeah. from, not really very sure. Uh, but yes, yeah, so absolutely, completely with where you're coming from. Massively yeah, appreciate it. Change agency is, is uh, hard, is, is difficult. It can easily become lonely. And that um, ability to build uh, communities of shared effort is... is um, it's important. One of the, the brilliant things about learning from excellence for me was the intuitive sense Adrian seemed to have of that uh, people don't, they need help to discover uh, each other um, and, and kind of the joy and pride in their own work. And that building of connections is absolutely essential. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to, we've touched about it on this in some of the other interviews, it does seem to require a bit of work to join these things up even though it's actually fundamentally very natural and intuitive we are uh, we, we talked about interdependence quite a lot in this conference and the, the theme of the whole thing is being better together so we, we work better together I, was, I love the way you, you mentioned family straight off the bat there um, because whenever I talk to a colleague if it's a career advice um, say for a trainee that I'm supervising it's always the first question is always how's this going to work out for the family that should come first so I recognise that. So coming on to era three, I've printed the paper again. I've read this several times. And look at all the notes I've made. I don't know if you can see It's interesting. I just find myself underlining every single word because it's, 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 um, oh, it's just brilliant. And I, I read it not long after it was published in 2016. For the people who are listening, I, I circulated on the off chance you haven't read it. I sent it out with the um, information for the conference. But just, I'll just briefly reflect on what I've seen in it, and then I'd like to ask you a couple of questions on it. So you describe this kind of clash or collision, is the word you use, between two eras, or they're really two mindsets, aren't they? On the, on the one hand, you have this the self-regulatory era where the physician was sort of the boss, and it's almost paternalistic. Um, and then there's the current era, which is around accountability, scrutiny, inspections. And and you, you point out that this clash is, is is never going to be resolved really unless we can move to another era you set out nine steps or nine things we should do um, to move into that era and then you describe at the end that this is the moral era um, which is around you know optimizing well-being i just want to highlight a couple of the um, steps you mentioned one is the, the fourth step you mentioned is we should give up professional prerogative when it hurts the whole and um, again, you suggesting that we should be asking ourselves, what am I part of? So this completely speaks to that wholeness idea. We talked about wholeness principle and efficient inquiry, interdependence I've just referred to. So that completely resonated with me. And then the seventh principle is to protect civility and the work that Chris is doing um, around uh, protecting civilities, pointing out that civility actually saves lives in healthcare again. Is spot on for what we the work that we're trying to do. So my question is: This is written in 2016. Would you change any of this now? And do you think we've made any progress? Well, I I know what I wrote isn't uh, completely correct. I just don't. The author, I don't know which parts are wrong, but I, no, I still believe in it. I think uh, there's an American philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who um, wrote that. Uh, I think he said the the. I think it's something like the mark of genius, although I wouldn't claim to that. The mark of genius is to believe that what's true of you is true of all people. 
Um, and I, I kind of believe that. Um, and, and so when I look at what I call era one and era two, the belief that somehow success lies in heroism and individual control and um, prerogative, and that's not how I feel. Uh, and when I look at what I call era two, which is that's that holding one's feet to the fire, others feet to the fire, accountability, incentive, uh, rewards, punishments, uh, at worst, naming and shaming are somehow roots to uh, better. That's not me. I, that you completely misunderstand me if you think that I'm dancing to that tune. So I, I continue to believe that. I think there's got to be a third way. For me, it's membership, interdependency, relationships over transactions, uh, compassion as fundamental. And so I, you know, I still believe that because that's how I feel. Um, I think no, we've not made progress. I think we're going backwards. I think that um, the tectonics since was that 2016? You said that I wrote that. Mm. Uh, no, the global the global tectonics are not favorable right now. Much more divisiveness and uh, uh, language of hatred, and uh, on a global level, in my country, uh, deepening deepening schisms, uh, walls that don't even see climbable anymore. And uh, leaders who are, have been unable to call on our better angels and, and, and speak to that. So I'm, I'm very, very worried. Uh, and I think the list of challenges the planet is facing, such as the pandemic or global uh, climate change, uh, war, you know, war and, and uh, failed states, uh, uh, biodiversity threats and so on. And these are all. Uh, massive uh, existential problems that will never be solved either by uh, accountability. It can't work because it involves high levels of cooperation and it certainly won't be solved by heroes. So I'm, I'm quite worried. Um, I mean, sorry to, sorry to be a downer at the end of your meeting. But I think uh, you know, we need people like you, uh, the, you know, the people assembled and you, uh, you two, uh, to, to speak a different language. I just uh, can't, I think change is possible, but I don't think it's underway at the level that I, I would hope for. The one uh, really bright spot I feel is that um, I think it's possible that youth will um, carry the day. Uh, as I deal with young people, students that I get to teach, uh, my own grandchildren, for, uh, if I may be uh, narcissistic about it, they, they're in the right place. I mean, they, they are they know what needs to happen and uh, they need the keys to the car. Yeah. So we need to listen to them. Oh yes. Absolutely. And not, and that drive, not drive the instincts out of them because yeah, I mean, when, when people enter our training systems or our culturation systems, we can do quite a bit of damage. And uh, I think that's an important um, warning. I mean, if I could just pick, I know Chris wants to ask you the next question, but just, I mean, I agree with all of that. And clearly we're in a, in a bit of a pickle. Um, things like, the, as you say, these are actually existential worries. Things like climate change and the potential impact of that is horrifying. But we, we have made, that's not to say we haven't made progress in some, I mean, if you look at just very basic health outcomes, life expectancy, um, survival from various yeah. we clearly make progress but what we're dealing with I think is the cost of progress and coming back to progress. yeah so we make progress here but the side effect or the balancing measure you know the impact of that is a collateral damage like the rise of consumerism and so people's health and, and lifestyle improves but we have a, we cause a massive damage to the ecosystem I take your point there. Yes, statistically, we have made some progress. Poverty is lower on the planet than it was. Life expectancy continues to rise in general, although we've had a slippage in the past couple of years. Um, so, um, yeah, no, the, there's, there's been progress, but we, I, I think solutions are, are, are faster progress is going to rely on a set of cultural norms that we have yet to achieve. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm instantly going off piece. Apologies for this. Um, Adrian has a list of questions, and uh, I'm just ignoring them at this moment in time. Because when you said you made a statement, you, you said about holding people's feet to the fire as a sort of managerial 
idea. And I heard somebody say this last week. I heard them say it about people within the emergency department. No, won't say which hospital with it. Said that, yes, but people in the emergency department needed to have their, this was a, a very senior manager, needed to have their feet held to the fire so they understood the pressures. And I thought to myself, I mean, it didn't come to mind instantly, but I thought about it afterwards and I thought, you're telling people who are standing in the furnace that they need to have their feet held to the fire. That makes no sense whatsoever. And yet people allow themselves to take these perspectives where they think the people who are delivering frontline care don't quite get what that all means. And it's, it's a deeply frustrating and very era two way of looking at how we try and get more out of people. Um, and that's just by just from the reflection because you triggered me to talk about it. Don. Sorry about that. Uh, now I have a question. Given what you've already said, that things may be heading in a not so great direction, where do you see the opportunities for us to lead improvement within healthcare? Do you see any low-hanging fruit or anything that might have significant impact? Um. Yes. Um, I think uh, we have a wonderful workforce in healthcare, and uh, if, um, if, they, if, if the people that give care uh, take control, uh, they'll do the right thing. Um, I, I think that the, um, the skill base that I've studied for 40 years, the skill base for improvement, the sciences of how you make a process better or how you can listen better to people you serve or how you can engage in more fundamental redesign, all of those matter. And so I'd say one thing is um, if, if we really go to system sciences and understand how complex things work technically, that'll really help. Uh, second, um, I, I may be wrong about this, but I, I tend to think that, um, I, don't want to, I don't want to overstate it and I'm really not sure, but I, I think that localities matter. You know, that's something, a language that's surfaced in, in England and the UK generally in the past uh, decade, and I think happily so. I, I must say I'm a pretty big fan of the NHS England move toward integrated care systems. I think there's a real possibility there because I think the large aggregates, nations, you know, the, 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 or units of 50 million are having a lot of trouble uh, staying focused on purpose, uh, staying with relationships is the key. But the closer I get to the to the ground, to the community, to the neighborhood, the more likely it is that I encounter the things that we're talking about, the, you know, a real commitment to each other, a sense of love, a sense of solidarity, a sense of sharing, a sense of possibility, mutual responsibility. And so I think maybe, maybe there's some real hope in, in the uh, empowerment of, of, uh, of localities and communities. Um, and in that, Healthcare professionals can play a phenomenally important role. They 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 be, they, they begin the day with a sense with with, with trust and um, an affection uh, from the populace that give them a, a platform for leadership and for change. I, I'm urging recently that uh, healthcare people become more involved in politics directly. I think that um, we, we we I don't think we get a pass when when uh, the politics of racism or division or uh, greed uh, dominate. And so I think we have to become more involved. I wrote a paper uh, uh, recently called The Moral Determinants of Health, in which I argued for this. I said, you know, we, we don't, we don't, there is no bystander seat, especially not for professionals who have uh, the chance to exercise a voice. And so I, I, I guess I put a lot of stake in the possibilities that that professionals, and that by no means mean only doctors, I think the healing professions together could become uh, a leadership force for sanity and compassion in guidance of public and private policies. So um, you mentioned uh, children and then grandchildren. And so you've, you've spent time with small people, obviously professionally you have as well. And I'm often, so I've got young kids as well and um, often reminded of the fact that if, if you want to bring about some kind of change, behavior change, um, so this is on a micro level, but it probably applies on the macro level, then, then actually focusing on what, what people are doing right is actually more effective and has a longer 
long-term effect. Yeah. This is what, you know, we, we appear to know this from literature, but also from personal experience, but it's difficult to do it. We had, um, I gave a talk on our work once and someone came to me afterwards and said, described how he'd been going through his six-year-old daughter's homework and uh, pointed out all the words that she'd spelled incorrectly. And she said, thank you for that. But what about all the ones that I spelled right? Uh, and it was a, a, apparently a penny-dropping moment. Did, I, can we translate that into improvement in healthcare? So not just yeah. on the front line, but also, you know, systemically. Yeah. How old are your kids? Uh, uh, so we've got three, uh, 13, 11, and 8. Wonderful. Yeah. Changes. They're, they're about to become your teachers, I warn you. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yes. I have eight grandchildren. And um, if I were to pause the Zoom and join any one of them right now, I'll tell you what I'd be discovering. I'd be discovering that they'd be trying some things. Uh, the four-year-old would be drawing and showing me her picture. The, the 12-year-old would be asking me to come to a baseball game where he's trying to pitch faster. Um, the uh, the one-year-old would be trying to pull herself into standing and just uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, finally learned to crawl. I mean, learning and aspiration and striving are... Um, they're, they're innate. We know that. We know that scientifically, empirically. Um, the other night, I was uh, uh, two of my grandkids, four years old, were sleeping over at our house. Um, one uh, had her parents in, in our house. They were visiting too, but the other, her parents were not away. They were not there. They were away, uh, taking a weekend off. And the girl whose parents were away, Zoe, was sad. And uh, I was reading them a book. Uh, at bedtime and Naomi, her four-year-old cousin interrupted and said, you know, Zoe, you're feeling sad. If tonight, if you feel sad during the night, please just wake me up and I'll talk to you. I didn't tell her to do that. That's we are, we are all born that way. And uh, so, you know, the possibility of finding this kind of um, these values inside us, I mean, it's, we don't even have to ask very hard. And I think that's a resource that we tremendously underestimate. That story that Chris told about the ED, think of everything that leader is missing about why most of those people are coming to work and how to, uh, so then the leadership job is how do we uh, excavate, rediscover, re-energize um, the, the, the uh, compassion and, and generosity that I think are, are there from birth. Not in absolutely everyone, of course, there are forms of pathology which stand in that way, but it's all there for the asking. Uh, uh, Thich Nhat the, the the Buddhist uh, teacher, says uh, uh, happiness is available. Help yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that if leaders just remember that, we can get through this mess and where we need to be. That's the brilliance of LFE. I think uh, you, you, what you did with that, you and your colleagues, Adrian, has translated that idea into a form of activity, and you you hit you hit pay dirt, of course. It's very sad to have leadership forget um, the humanity that people start with, and they can they can drive it out. I'll tell you, you could, it's all too easy to create uh, a collective in which that sensibility is lost. It's fragile, and uh, we do it too often. Uh, I, love, I love the idea of rediscovering that. We talked a bit about that with Camilla Kingdon in an earlier interview about rediscovering the the sort of motivation to work in healthcare for people mm-hmm. becoming a bit burnt out, jaded. and um, But actually we're here talking about rediscovering something which is really fundamental. Uh, the big question would be how, how should we go about doing this rediscovery? I doubt, well, you may have thoughts on that. I don't have an answer. But, uh, I, don't know, I don't have a clear answer. I think uh, what you're doing today, I mean, the, uh, the getting together is, uh, is, it's hard to do this alone. So creating uh, venues and uh, platforms for, for the kind of conversations you had today, I was jealous of, I, I very much wish I was a part of them. That, that's, that's not a small thing to do. Uh, there's several uh, people in the chat here uh, expressing their concerns about finding the time to do relationship development and 
in this kind of support or political involvement. And that's exactly right. You have to, you have to find, you have to reserve the time. And that's, that's part of it for leaders. Uh, the leaders are people too. And I think that, um, there are among them, of course, people that want to, uh, lead with compassion and, um, this kind of understanding. And I think, uh, finding them and working with them and building with them, uh, I will embarrass one that I've come to really admire Rob Webster up at, um, at uh, West Yorkshire and Harrogate, I mean, when you deal with Rob, you're dealing with a soulful leader who really wants to try to discover opportunities to help people do what they want to do instead of make people do what he wants them to do. And I think that's that develop, leadership development is key. Mm. I think one of the things that occurs to me is uh, the relationship to this in government. Since you're a government health system, uh, you know, government uh, the, 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 the important role of work of government matters, but so the government culture does too. And governments change and they're very, they're rather, uh, 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 there's a lot of variation, <clears throat> which increases the sense to me that the professions need to be a stabilizing force, you know, over time and space, making sure that these values are, are preserved. It's interesting. You, you mentioned leadership a whole bunch of times. In the last few minutes, but we have been hearing this almost every session. People have been talking about leadership and the kind of leadership that we yep. need to sustain people within within in the health service in our country. Um, and I suspect it's an avenue we might go down a bit further yep. at some point in, in the near future. Um, something that's closely related is unprofessional behaviours or behaviours that undermine a culture of safety. Uh, obviously, it's something I'm interested in with the Civility Saves Lives work that we do. But I really value hearing your take on unprofessional behaviours and approaches and your thoughts on it. I think first to understand that the they're rare and uh, don't... Uh, let's, let's not develop a whole portfolio of activities and pro, you know, pro, a, a kind of comprehensive program approach to disruptive and, and destructive behaviors like that 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 would be like uh, driving a car assuming the tire is always flat it's not you know and so there is there's an important uh, maturity to this a balancing of concern about that with a nurturing of the positive stuff that always goes on all every day every minute in organizations and you can really get out of balance uh truly disruptive behaviors you know a surgeon who yells at a young student or or a person who's disrespectful of a patient or, uh, or worse, uh, you know, uh, forms of, of assault, uh, they have to stop. They have to not be tolerated. And so there is a, there's an edge to improvement in which, um, you know, a line is drawn and you say, no, that that's not what one does here. And it's, it's unacceptable. And uh, if it continues, it, you, you can't be here. Uh, and I think we need the guts and, uh, you know, we need some fortitude around that. Now, a healthy, uh, a healthy work environment will do that almost automatically. It'll extrude or uh, identify and act on those behaviors uh, a, a, in a self-controlling way. And that's really where we need to be heading. So everyone says that. In the, it, however, sometimes there is a burden on leaders to, to take an action. Leaders will be watched uh, to see if they, if they, uh, how they're acting. Uh, there, there's a, YouTube video spinning around by, a, I think, a very senior officer in U.S. military who says the behavior you walk past is behavior you encourage, the behavior you encourage is what you tolerate is you encourage. So I know there's lines should be drawn. I must say um, I'm a bit of a softy on this and, I, and I, I, I may be I may be wrong, but I think that even the person behaving that way has a story. And so. Um, how do we remain clinically compassionate in the presence of unacceptable behaviors? Because that's still a person and why they're doing that is, is an important question. And, and I think compassion is always includes healing. And so I, I, you know, I think having restorative processes in place that at least offer people the opportunity to reconsider behaviors that are being destructive is, is, is also really, really important. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, amazing uh, American author, um, Brian Stevenson, who's been a champion of 
criminal justice reform says you are not defined by the worst thing you've ever done. And I just think uh, we could sort of keep that in mind, even while we'd be, we, we're willing to draw a line and see you, that you, you may not do that here. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting when you're saying that you, you're a bit of a softie around it. I, mean, I think what I find is that people who are non-judgmental when they see or hear something, when they take a curiosity into that to find out what's going on for the other person, that it's never the story you think it is. They didn't wake it up and say no. to be a bad person. Um, and I found that a really useful take for myself just to be starting from what's going on for them, what's making this right for them. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to say, hard to do, but it's, it's the behavior that's unacceptable, not the person necessarily. And, and making that distinction is, uh, is important. And maybe we can help, especially under times of stress now. Remember, we are in a very especially stressful time. And that, of course, uh, pushes people over the brink sometimes. They can't handle it anymore. And um, so there is a, certainly a systemic piece of this in which to, uh, Offering respite and uh, solace and uh, accepting the uh, vulnerability of each of us as normal as human is part of the. I think it's part of the transformation our professions are going under undergoing right now. One of the one of the pieces of optimism I feel is that I think somehow, at least now, maybe temporarily, we are understanding that when clinicians meet their limits psychologically, that's okay. That 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 the important thing is to re, is to disclose it and reveal it and share it. And, and heal, uh, not to hide it or pretend or hide behind a veil of, of heroism. Yeah, we've, we've uh, earlier on in the meeting, we talked a bit about sharing vulnerability uh, when you're in a kind of obvious yeah. leadership position on the shop floor or in the office. Um, and yeah, how important that is. I, I think you may be familiar with the concept of appreciative inquiry. Um, with, Very much, yes. Yeah. And so one of the questions that we like to ask, guests who are willing to talk to us is is based on or is, is taken from appreciative inquiry um so i'll just come straight out with it and ask you what do you think is the best version of the future that, that you can imagine and, and then that one would follow that up with what can we do next to move towards that we, I'm, I'm sure we've covered some of it already but i'm probing a bit further uh the, the best version of the future uh the discovery, the, the the authentic discovery and action by us as communities of, around redistribution of opportunity, we have very, we have a, such a segmented society with uh, by wealth and region, you know, barely two percent of the population of uh, Africa are now vaccinated. Uh, we're fretting in my city because we're only at seventy five percent. Uh, this is intolerable. And I look for a, a time when the world may wake up and say, no, uh, it, well, why is the death of a child in sub-Saharan Africa less important than the death of a child in New York City or, 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 or London? Uh, it, it isn't. Is it less important? And I think uh, maybe there's some step we'll be able to take as a towards some sense of human solidarity. I, I know that's a big ask and I don't think it's likely, but you asked me what the best version would be. It would be that it'd be waking up people. It's one planet, the climate change um, and pandemic world is kind of uh, taking us to school on that. You know, there is, there are just no local solutions. It's, it's, it's everybody together or not at all. I think hopefully somebody's going to wake us up we maybe we need a leader we need somebody in the world to to, to recruit the, that sense I, i'm sure that 98 percent of the people listening to me think that's incredibly naive you're somehow trapped in tribalism inescapably so and if so we're things aren't going to go well well let's see <laughs> i mean we certainly need change um and i think yeah with those big existential problems that we face, it actually requires a, a true paradigm shift. Um, I mean, I think we've, we're all now, of course, interested in addressing the climate change agenda. And I'm, I'm interested in psychology and behaviour change, but I realise actually we can only scrape the surface um, by changing our behaviours 
day to day. We need, we actually need hardcore legislation to make, um, save the planet, um, in my opinion. I, I wonder, I don't want to go back to a detail here, Adrian, but I will for a second, which is the integrated care systems. Now, I, look, I haven't been in the UK in about 18 months, uh, but over the prior four or five years, I saw the development of the concept of reorganizing the National Health Service around um, place-based integrated systems for real, with single control total budgets, with responsible executives and boards. And I got uh, pretty excited Um this wouldn't save the planet and it's not about, uh, you know, world peace, but if uh, the clinicians of uh, the UK or England, let's start with, um, what would happen if, if you, all the clinicians, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, the therapists, managers had some uh, new live commitment that in your locality, your ICS area, West Yorkshire and Harrogate, or any of the other 40 or so ICSs, you're going to become 100% cooperative and uh, communitarian about it, uh, that you're going to change the, the health of, of, of yourselves and your population by working together in an unprecedented level of cooperation, uh, putting prerogatives on the table, as my paper said, uh, sharing resources, setting very bold goals, co-producing with the populace, um, you you wouldn't be solving climate change or pandemics, but you could, you know, there's there it would be possible. It really would be possible for a locality to emerge as an example, international example of health and well-being uh, if everyone got on board. Um, anyway, that that occurs to me as we talk because I'm looking for traction, looking for a place where people can get engaged and you really make a difference. You can't, yeah. you just can't do it by fighting. It's just not the way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And we one of the sessions earlier, we talked about how uh, during the sort of first wave of the pandemic, frontline staff were given a lot of autonomy. And actually, I think, yeah. reflecting what you were just asking, I think that probably did create local communities. Uh, it may have been within an organisation, um, which is like a much smaller scale concept of the integrated care system. And that, and that was in many places considered to be effective. We could just get stuff done with the intelligence that yeah. we have for working, you know, day to day in this environment. You saw it happen. Incredible things happen. I mean, I know there's controversy, but uh, I, I was watching the Nightingale facility at the Excel Center in London develop. You know, it was, uh, I believe it was three weeks from the thought occurring of converting that to a 2900 bed intensive care unit to first patient being admitted. Now, it turned out you didn't need the facility. It was never populated extensively. But when you, when you decided to do something, man, did, did, did you, you meaning England, uh, did something rather miraculous? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is great. I'm, I'm looking at the clock and thinking we should take some questions from the people sure. listening. If that's okay. um, I'm going to, it's probably easier, Emma, if you come in now and Pose that first question. Is that okay? I've been monitoring the chat actually to try and kind of pick up some of the questions. And there's one that reflects on the kind of you talking about the kind of inequality that we face, and actually that being a, I mean, other than kind of the climate emergency that we know is um, facing us, that this kind of idea of inequality and and how we address that. And they are working somewhere that their trust covers eight out of ten of the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. And they struggle, I think, to get accurate um, presentation from all of their population groups. So how do you even know what those groups kind of need if you can't find, if you can't talk to them and get their representation? And what she's asked was, from your experience, do you have any suggestions about how to get groups more engaged with kind of improving things? Uh, yes, um, it, it's a t tough question. No, no, no simple answer that I know. Uh, yeah, I think the first uh, a couple, couple of thoughts. One is um, there's no experience, there's no substitute for being there. Uh, Brian Stevenson, this hero of mine that I mentioned uh, earlier, he he uses the word proximity. Uh, he says if he, it, it's the opposite of what Chris was describing with that emergency room executive. Uh, proximity means you you are there physically in the presence of the people you're trying to help understand and co-produce with. And so there has to be energy and time put into 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 being there. Uh, 
Cincinnati Children's Hospital in in uh, Cincinnati, uh, Ohio, which uh, you you at Birmingham may well know, um, has been a leader in this. Uh, some years ago, maybe as long as a decade, the executives there decided to make a, a thorough commitment to the well-being of the 60,000 children in Cincinnati who were at most disadvantage. But they knew that they couldn't do it with a command and control approach or, or, or with even on their anywhere near on their own. So what they did was they sort of set a common table in the city in which there are meetings all the time of stakeholder groups in Cincinnati who care about kids uh, in a common place at a common time talking about goals and activities to solve it. They have to put the time in. Uh, when I visited Cincinnati most recently, I was in a room. I, I I would not be surprised if there were one if there were more than a thousand people in that room. Round tables of ten or twelve of all of the stakeholder subgroups in the room in dialogue, and that face to face relationship development I think is it has to be part of the answer. You 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 can't skip the talking, can't skip the conversation, and and so preserving the time and energy to do that is actually is actually key. I'll say something maybe a little politically incorrect, which is um, you kind of have to get going. Uh, too much planning, too much sitting around, even given what I said, and thinking about getting the exact right um, uh, plan in place to help this subpopulation or work with the subpopulation. That's a formula for no progress. And so there's a balance between the, the inevitable, the importance of listening and the importance of getting started. Because we can always do PDSA. We can always start and say, hey, everybody, how did that go? What did we just learn that we can use the next time around? So maybe that combination of listening and action is something like what occurs to me in response to that very good question. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense, doesn't it? So even if you can't get representation from everyone, who can you get representation from? And can you start to hear their voice and listen to that and, and make those changes and then and then kind of engage further after that? Yeah. Um, yes, it's a subtle difference between listening and planning and then making a change on the one hand or making a change and listening to what how, how it went on the other. And the, the latter is the better way to, to be. There's a couple of um, really interesting questions in the chat. You may have seen them go past you. There's one around yeah. uh, QI in, in its rollout within the era two of um, you know incentives and measurements and um, well, that whole kind of context as that may have worsened morale. I, I think that probably comes down to knowing what you're measuring. And actually, you say in the era's paper, measure what's important, not just everything. Um, is that your response to that question? Yeah, in part. I mean, for, uh, if, if the error two, which is the error of control and accountability, if, if that's what people mean by quality improvement, they, they're entirely missing the point. Uh, I would be totally happy, totally happy if the rest of my life I never used the word accountability again. It is not about uh, uh, demanding something or or account. It's not about accountability. It's about learning. You know, I hate to do this, but I go back to my grandchild. If, if Naomi, four years old, who, who is she aspires all the time. The, you know, the other the other day I was her mother was sick, so she was staying with us and. And I, uh, she was, I was on a Zoom and she was next to me drawing a mountain, uh, a picture of a mountain. And she kept interrupting me to show me the mountain. Uh, and so what I did was I discussed and celebrated the mountain. If I said to her, uh, gee, that mountain scores four out of a possible five. Or um, you know, next time you need to draw a bigger mountain. I mean, it, it, it would have shut everything. You know what that would have done to a kid? Yeah. It's what it does to all of us. So anyone that thinks that rolling out QI is the installation of uh, command and control or accountability metrics is just dead wrong. Now, measurement is double-edged. It's, it's a little hard to improve. It's not impossible. Uh, I'll, I'll say you can write this down. The concept that you can't manage what you can't measure is stupid. Where have you been? All the time we improve stuff that we don't measure. Yeah. Um, however, to improve, you might need some ability to sense, to understand. I've, n- I've never given my wife a questionnaire, 
but our marriage gets better over time. Um, we do it by conversation and by narrative and by, you know, reflecting and getting things wrong and then trying to get them right. Uh, measurement is a, is a, it, it can be a form of, it can be a tool of, of, uh, abuse of, of, of a deception. Um, if it's not done correctly. So I don't know what um, exactly experience I was talking about here, but anyone that rolls out QI as accountability metrics is just, they've missed the whole point. They, they probably never read a word Deming wrote. Um, the, the, uh, the, the general idea, which, which we wrote about in the report uh, that I did on Mid-Staffordshire is to move to a learning process. That, that's, if you just do that, the, the rest happens. And, and so they, they, they've got it wrong if it's error two approach to QI. They, they don't understand QI. Yeah, the, I'm, I'm loving this reference to the young children in this. And they, you've just reminded me of something I've talked about several times before. I, I once made a mistake at work, as you do, a clinical mistake that a patient came to some, uh, uh, got away with without being harmed, but it could have been horrible. And I was upset about it. Spoke to my daughter who was six at the time this is the 13 year old now and said you know this is bad I made a mistake I went away and came back home she left me a little checklist which said uh say sorry say it was an accident uh say it won't happen again and then said uh ask for forgiveness and I think that's the bit that sometimes gets missed actually and I don't know how we how we go about as a society saying let's let's forgive each other uh, but it, it seems to be essential for learning when we when we get things wrong. Yeah, I mean, you have to first first forgiveness. You have to forgive yourself. I think that man, do we take a toll on it on ourselves? We look, we're trained to be heroes. We're trained. It's my patient, and what happens is my doing, and therefore, when something goes wrong, it's my doing, and and I internalize that. The the, the worst the worst criticisms are coming from inside. Uh, not outside and uh, somehow getting over that into some form of uh, self-healing, self-regard and, and, uh, and learning that that's, that's far better. Not, I, do I do that all the time? Absolutely not. I beat up on myself all the time. There's some more questions in the chat. Have we got time? I love it. El- Eloise put in a chat. We could all do with being six year old again for a day. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you just remember what it was like to try to jump higher next time, then you're, yeah. you're in the right frame of mind. Yeah. So we've got a question here. It may, may have to be our last one, actually. I don't know if you've seen it. What advice do you have for senior leaders in the NHS who are subject to pr- pressures to conform to externally applied regulation versus the groundswell for a reduction in what's gone off my screen, reduction in micromanagement and putting staff well-being as a priority? So I think that sort of tension between having to conform to these sort of targets, but actually recognizing that kind of staff well-being is important. Any tips? Yeah, t- uh, two tips, um, but only for the curious, because if the senior manager isn't really asking that, they're not going to change. But if they're really curious, there's two ideas I have. One is an experience we had at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We ran this project in the U.S. and then in the U.K., uh, not in Europe uh, overall, called Breaking the Rules for Better Care. It was the most fun project I've ever done, maybe. We asked, uh, we asked uh, organizations, there were 24 in the U.S. There were some, like, something like two or three dozen in, in, uh, in the European Alliance. This is the Health Improvement Alliance Europe is what I'm talking about. It's an IHI program for membership of organizations, which you all should join. Um, in the U.S., it was 24 organizations. We said, spend a week, go ask your patients, carers, staff, to, to nominate stupid rules, that is rules that they that are in the environment that makes no no sense. They they stand in the way of better care, and they probably have a heritage, but um, but uh, uh, they don't they don't function anymore. And twenty four organizations nominated three hundred and sixty stupid rules in one week. Uh, and when you read them, they were like, "What? Where did that rule come from?" Um, I, uh, and so the, the project was called breaking the rules for better care. And the, the senior executives then were supposed to say to the staff, break the rule. Don't, don't do not adhere to the rule. If it's stupid, stop it. And then later, if we discover it, we needed it, we'll put it back. 
it was like a it was a celebratory uh, a few months as they did that, and then it was repeated in in the UK uh, and and uh, and Europe um, uh, with the same result. So my first advice to uh, leaders is do a stupid rules project and get get this get these obstacles out of the way of the people. Um, I think the second piece of advice I would have is the Japanese phrase, go to the Gemba, which is, uh, Gemba means, I think it means shop floor, the work fa- workplace. Um, go, go, go be there. Uh, spend a day as a nurse, trying, you know, failing as a nurse. Uh, try, tr- go and, and, and just be there. Because if you're not there, you're going to make the same mistake that Chris was recounting about that in that emergency room story. And there's there's just no substitute for for just it's for proximity. That would be a really great way to start to understand what the conditions of work really really are like. And then have the humility to ask what what would I do in this circumstance? How do, how would I feel if I were in that situation? And I think we I'd like everybody right up to the prime minister to do that. Um, and, and get back in touch with what the real work life is. Work for the, the Deming used to say, uh, all people want is a chance to be proud of their work. So go discover that. Mm. That's great. Thank you for that. I, I think we've run out of time. To, yeah. To, yeah, I mean, we've, you, you promised us an hour, and that's very generous of you, Don. And you're welcome to stay for the last, we've got about half an hour left of the meeting. Uh, I wish, unfortunately, I have another another meeting to to go to. Uh, Believe me, I think I missed the best meeting of the day, maybe of the week or month, by not being with you. And I wish I'd been able to do that. Thank you for the chance to join you. No, no, we're very grateful. Massively, massively impressed. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank Thank you. you. And uh, and invite me back to Birmingham sometime. uh, Yes, please. Okay, good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, please come come see us. We'd love that. Thank Thank you, Don privilege thank you all bye-bye so that was our conversation with don berwick an enormous thank you again to don for his time i think there is lots we can learn from what he shared reflecting as i listen again i noticed when asked about what he was proud of he immediately spoke of his family and that he recognized the value of relationships to achieve improvement at work much of what he said about how we can improve healthcare came back to being part of a community and trying to understand the perspective of others. He echoed what we heard from Camilla Kingdon in our first episode about reconnecting with our humanity and our willingness to help others. He was so wise and yet also so humble, using the phrase, I may be wrong, when sharing new ideas or ways of thinking. So much good stuff. If you enjoyed this episode, please do check out the other podcasts in our series. We hope you will join us again in the future. Until then, take care.